When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. EU Confidential will get started right after this message. This week's episode is presented by the Croatian Presidency of the Council of the EU. Only safe Europe can provide peaceful environment for its citizens. In this regard, efficient protection of the EU external borders, as well as an increased resilience to external threats and hybrid and cyber threats, are of vital importance. Welcome to a special edition of the EU Confidential Podcast from the Munich Security Conference. We're standing in the courtyard of the press centre of the conference in central Munich. And this is a conference with a lot of panels. And we've assembled a high-powered one of our own to look back at the conference over the past three days. Uh, with me is Political Europe's Editor-in-Chief Stephen Brown. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Chief Europe Correspondent Matt Karnichnik. Matt? Hi there. Reem Montaz, our Paris correspondent. Hi, Reem. Hello. And joining us, Lawrence Serolus, our technology correspondent. How are you, Lawrence? Very good, thanks. Stephen, Matt and Reem, you all spent uh, quite a lot of time actually in the Bayerische Hof rather than here at the press centre. Can you just give us a flavour of what it's like, this event? Because the word security conference doesn't really kind of begin to capture it, I think. Stephen? Yeah, so it's a real busy warren in there of just corridors packed, absolutely packed with people, all of whom think they're important and sometimes think you're important too, which is astonishing. You literally get into a lift with Madeleine Albright and the uh, German foreign uh, minister and it's pretty intense I would say there's a lot of security people actually present there ridiculous number of security men considering how hard it is to get in there's even a separate entrance I noticed on the map for weapon holders someone described it to me as Davos with guns I think they meant that slightly differently but it does feel a little bit like that Matt what's your kind of sense of it well I actually took the uh, entrance for weapon holders well you have the pen of course which is mightier than any weapon Well, as a defender of the Second Amendment. uh, (laughs) But I I do think that the interesting thing about it is that there's a lot of spontaneity in the interactions that you have with people that you often don't get elsewhere. And and it is, it's kind of real melange, as some people might call it, of people from, you know, different spheres of the world who, you know, are thrown into this small hotel, people who often don't disagree on very fundamental issues. So to Stephen's point, you might run also into Zarif and, you know, down the hall, you could have Mike Pompeo or somebody like that. So it's a bit like the UN in that sense, but maybe a little bit less formal. Reem, you came here, I think, originally as a delegate. Um, What's your impression of it? What strikes you about it? You know, like two years ago, I'm still struck by as soon as you walk into the first big room, which is kind of a ballroom, you're struck by how many people are in uniform and so many men, so many men. Uh, And as a woman, you just... We like men. We like men. 
we're, we're, I mean, we're, we like men. We like too. all genders. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of men. I'm also a fan of, of women being, you know, in the room on security issues because, you know, women also suffer from insecurity in a way that men don't, perhaps, in conflicts. Uh, and you know, being part, uh, being in the room is important. Uh, that being said. The flip side of this is that it is an asset to be a woman because a people notice you because there are so few of us and people talk to you actually easier I feel and you know the other thing about being here is this unbelievable situation where you run into literally the head of the intelligence agency of a big country you're able to sit down and talk to them when these people usually run away from journalists and there's a bar that's actually very convivial where you sit there and you know around 11pm people start filing in and they sit down and they strike up conversation with you and they don't realize you're a journalist usually and then you have to kind of reveal that and you know it does lead to some pretty candid conversations in a way that we can't normally have yeah another thing it's interesting always to get a new perspective and one of the new members of our team this year natasha mentioned that what struck her is that the questions from the audience normally in conferences questions from the floor are you know people who might be largely unknown but quite often at this conference you will get very senior politicians presidents or former presidents suddenly popping up from the conference floor to ask a question of somebody who may actually be kind of more junior than them in the pecking order. So that's something that's quite strange and I would say fairly kind of unique to Munich. Just been joined by our chief Brussels correspondent, David Herzenhorn, uh, hot-footing it, having filed uh, the last of our special pop-up playbooks, which you can find online, together with a range of stories from everybody you're hearing from here. David, overall impressions of Munich this year? Munich is always crazy. I love to hear Reem talk about the people who don't know we're journalists, from the woman who gets sought out by these high-powered diplomats who come into the cafe salon just looking for her after their briefing to have yet another conversation about what's really going on. One of the amazing things you've noticed is the quality, not just of the speakers, but of who gets to ask the questions. And what kind of topics? What do you think? You know, it's very hard sometimes. There's so much going on, an overarching theme or, or idea that you take away from it. Well, I mean, we've talked about this westlessness, which a lot of the folks here who aren't native English speakers didn't catch the play on restlessness right at first. Certainly, Ischinger, the chairman of the conference, wanted everybody focused on that decline of the West, which some folks have pointed out has been lamented and sort of talked about for 25 years or more. Interesting, of course, climate, you know, some of the new topics always, some of the age-old conflicts, Nagorno-Karabakh, etc. What's striking, though, is there isn't a lot of introspection. Tons and tons of navel-gazing, but no introspection. So you hear a lot of folks... What's the difference? (laughs) Well, navel-gazing is all these folks who are in their worlds, in their zone, talking about security in the same way they've talked about security forever, which means it involves, you know, tanks and missiles and spending 2% of GDP and not sort of stepping back to ask, you know, what are we all doing here? And why, you know, are they asking some of the same questions year after year after year? Former Senator Sam Nunn from Georgia, big on nonproliferation, pointing out that sometimes the vivid distracts us from what's vital. That's in our wrap-up playbook. And talking about how nuclear nonproliferation really should be at the top of the list. You know, nuclear holocaust, something you're obligated to try to avoid if you're a public official. And that's not getting a lot of attention here. There are still folks who bring it up. But the entire question of, you know, why is there a security conference and how do you define security is not really talked about. Okay, Lawrence, last word to you. I think uh, what David just mentioned shows in, in, in discussion about China as well, because clearly the U.S. delegation comes to Munich with their talking points is China, China, China. It's Huawei. Nancy Pelosi was here, Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. She was talking about Huawei. So this is all over the talking points of the U.S. delegation. At the same time, 
Europeans present at the conference kind of wonder, you know, what are the other topics we should be talking about? We had a conversation with the Lithuanian defense minister this morning who was saying to us, to Lithuania, the imminent threat is Russia. It's not China. We know there's threats involved with China and we know this is an issue that's come up and that will be very important in the long run. But in the short term, it's Russia we should be worrying about. Okay, so let's just get a quick sense of your impressions because during this uh, event we're really bombarded with uh, speeches and panels and discussions and background chats. When you try and boil it all down, Stephen, what jumps out at you as the kind of main theme or some of the main themes? I suppose the ferocity of the criticism of China. Absolutely astonishing how everyone seemed to be piling in on the Chinese. So much so that Wolfgang Ischinger, who chairs the conference at one point, tried to make sure that the Chinese foreign minister, who, unlike the Brits, did come, was given a fair hearing, though the room actually emptied out quite severely at that point. Matt? Uh, Just how divided the U.S. and Europe remain on key issues, including China, I would say. It seems to me that the U.S. side has the impression that Europe just doesn't understand what China is really up to, what China's endgame is. I heard that again and again, that Europe seems to think that they can have some kind of equal distance between themselves, Washington, and Russia, and the U.S. is warning them that at the end of the day, if China gets its way, it's not just going to be about 5G that they're trying to sell to Europe. It's not just about Huawei. It's about making Europe an appendage of Chinese influence of the Chinese empire as the U.S. sees it. So I felt that, you know, this conference that's really supposed to be about transatlantic unity really, for me, over the past couple of days, really just showed how deep the divisions are. And we've known that there's a lot of tension, obviously, but it really hit it home again. Reem, you were wearing two hats here. You moderated a panel on Libya. You were also, of course, covering Emmanuel Macron, who was one of the kind of star speakers. What jumped out at you? There are a few things. The first one is around the theme of the conference this year, Westlessness. And I was very struck by how the U.S. Secretary of State came up on stage and twice said, there is no problem here. The West is winning. The West is winning. And then less than an hour later, Macron gets on stage and says, well, actually, the West is weakening. And, you know, it makes you wonder, really, is the transatlantic relationship, are they speaking to each other? Do they look at the situation the same way? Is the West still in agreement on what it is and what it's going through? That's the one side. I was also struck by the reaction in the room, in the main conference hall, to Macron himself. It was really astounding. They didn't do this to anyone else who came through. You know, you have to keep in mind, this is a group of very high-powered people in that room. As soon as he walked in, they started clapping like he was the you know second coming of the Messiah or something. When he was announced, they clapped again. Every time he answered a question, they clapped. It was just, it felt like everyone was kind of relying on, thank God there is one person in this sort of Western hemisphere who can talk about things in a strategic manner or hold his own or answer questions uh, and answers without dodging too much and actually make news. The third thing that I was struck by was the absolute, almost quasi-complete absence of any conversation on Idlib and Syria right now, even though it's not just a refugee issue or a migration issue for Europe, but it's an actual security issue for Europe. And almost no one was talking about it. Right. Lawrence, I guess the big player in in your world was Mark Zuckerberg, who had one of the main spots at the conference, was interviewed by the conference chairman. Did anything jump out at you from what he said or didn't say? And, And what else, you know, from a kind of tech and cyber perspective was important from your point of view? 
I think it's interesting to note that Mark Zuckerberg just shows up in the first place. European leaders don't often have the opportunity to speak to Mark Zuckerberg directly, and I think it's interesting that he chose Munich Security Conference to make a point. The main lines of his speech, or his fireside chat, as Facebook would like to call it, was disinformation. Facebook is getting better at fighting disinformation. And interestingly, he was saying that to a security crowd, which has had a lot of difficulty of handling uh, the issue of disinformation. This is a traditional security crowd that is sort of more comfortable with dealing with things like defense issues, military deployment, etc. And now there is a young, still young, tech CEO talking to them about disinformation. I think this is quite interesting that the conference has had to get used to that element. Other points in his speech were interesting to note, like hate speech, terrorist content, the issues that Facebook is dealing with for some years now. What's interesting is that Zuckerberg is explicitly pushing the idea of regulation on this front. Obviously, we've heard Facebook say, you know, we want rules. When there's rules, we will abide by them. But he is now making more explicitly the point that there needs to be regulation and governments need to define specifically what Facebook should be removing from its platform and what they shouldn't be removing. And he's headed for Brussels next. So Zuckerberg will meet with uh, European Commission officials in Brussels tomorrow on Monday. So we'll hear more about that aspect of his pitch. Great for now, Stephen, Matt, Reem, David, Lawrence, thanks very much. One of the big events of the conference was a Q&A with Emmanuel Macron. So let's get some reactions to his remarks and also a couple of different perspectives on relations between the US and Europe. Uh, first from Cem Özdemir, former leader of Germany's Green Party. The Greens are riding high in the polls now and they could even provide Germany's next chancellor. So they're very much part of the conversation on the future of Europe and the transatlantic relationship. And Cem Özdemir took some time to speak to Matt on the sidelines of the conference. I did want to just maybe briefly go over your impressions of the conference so far, in particular Macron's speech this morning, where you know he seemed to again show a lot of openness to you know, more European initiatives to really pushing the European project forward. You know, we heard Steinmeier yesterday making similar comments, obviously. And, you know, I know it's something that you as as a green politician have supported for many years, but it doesn't seem to be happening. Do you see any sort of light at the end of the tunnel at the moment? What is our choice uh, then to see light at the end of the tunnel if we don't want to commit suicide? So when we look back six years in the past, in the Munich Security Conference at that time, the German president Gauck said Germany needs to play a more active role and, and show responsibility. Steinmeier, who at that time was the foreign affairs minister, said the same thing. Von der Leyen said the same thing at that time. And if you look today, unfortunately, domestic policy is pushing us so hard that it's hard to imagine Germany playing a more active role in foreign policy. So. I'm afraid that uh, President Macron needs to spend a bit more time to wait until Germany is ready to act and take its part of responsibility to show leadership together with the French president. I know that in order to move ahead, it needs not only France, it needs Germany on the side of France together with our European partners. But I'm afraid that for the time being, Germany will not be ready to take its part of the leadership that would be necessary. Macron also had dinner last night with two of the leaders of your party. What do you think the significance of that is, of, of this overture to the green leadership in Germany? Well, he did that already when we had the negotiations after the last elections on the national level. 
uh, during the so-called Jamaica talks. Mm. But then unfortunately it failed. This time it looks more likely that we will be able to form a government and therefore it makes sense to talk to that party that might become a partner in the next government and it's clear that the Green Party has a lot of issues where we disagree, we're against nuclear power, we think that it's not the best idea to block Macedonia and Northern Macedonia and Albania from EU negotiation talks on membership and a number of other issues. But on the general view that we have to strengthen the European Union, that we have to play a more active role, that we have to show responsibility, at least in our immediate neighborship, we completely agree with President Macron. Therefore, I think that could be a tremendous chance if we get a new German government that is ready to take more responsibility together with President France. By the way, also for his success in France, because it's obvious that it is in the German interest and in the interest of everybody who is in favor of liberal democracies that this president and his presidency is a successful term, because look at the alternatives. So obvious, this maybe is one of the most important messages from the last years. We, we should see beyond the borders of our countries and understand that the success of liberal leaders in other countries is as well our success. That, unfortunately, was not the case in the past. The Munich Security Conference has historically been really based on the exchange in the transatlantic alliance. You're considered within your own party, and I think in Germany in general, as, as somebody who is a transatlanticist. Uh, not everybody in your party is. How do you see the state of the transatlantic relationship right now, especially after you know this weekend, we're halfway through the weekend, you, you heard, I presume, uh, Pompeo earlier today yeah. and, and uh, Secretary Esper speaking. What is your sense of how things stand and how do you think it will evolve in the coming years, especially if President Trump is re-elected um, president? Well, first of all, the Munich Security Conference itself went through a transformation from talks about arms race, new weapon systems, and, uh, you know, the amount of uh, spending for defense, which, of course, still uh, here and there plays a role. Climate change is now an issue and a topic that more or less everybody, maybe except for the official U.S. delegation, sees as a security threat as well as it is a threat for humankind. Then the future of liberal democracies and the threat that we receive uh, from Russia, from China, from others, or from within our societies, from right-wing extremists, is on the agenda. So I think that's a good development because it shows that liberal democracies have to defend themselves and have to be show responsibility for the planet and for its future. Regarding transatlanticism, I'm not that skeptical that the Green Party is not a very clear transatlanticist party because, in a way, I once read an article that the Green Party is the first post-Westphalian party in Germany. Therefore, I would say there are a lot of things that we have in common. In a way, the values of the U.S. society are represented within the core principles of the Green Party. So I would say let's be pro-transatlanticist, let's defend the values of the U.S. society against the president who unfortunately currently is a person 
who does not have a lot in common with what the U.S. taught us after the Second World War in the re-education when Germany was brought back into the international community. So let's stay pro-American because Trump is threatening the U.S. values. Together with our friends in the House, together with many governors who try to defend climate, the fight against climate change, the fight for international rule-based system. Let's work with all those segments of the society together. The other United States of America thinks that they need a strong Europe, they need partners in the world. And let's be optimistic that I hope in the next presidential race, but on the long term, they will come back. Sir, thank you very much for your time. Welcome. Now let's get a view from the other side of the Atlantic from Nicholas Burns, a former US ambassador to NATO, who's also held other senior diplomatic roles. And Matt caught up with him also on the sidelines of the conference. I think the elephant in the room is President Trump. The European theme here at the conference is westlessness. Where is the leadership? And they see an American leader who's pulled out of the climate change agreement the Paris Agreement, which for Europeans is their number one issue, both governments and public. They see a president who pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal and then tried to sanction the European governments uh, because they continued economic ties to Iran. And they see an American president who's been an unremitting critic of Chancellor Merkel, of President Macron, of other allied leaders while he embraces authoritarian leaders like Vladimir Putin. I think that's why you're hearing these complaints from Europe about the lack of American leadership, traditional leadership that Republican and Democratic presidents have always given to NATO. The other aspect that I think is not really well understood in the United States is how important the European Union is, particularly to Germans and the French. And President Trump said again last week, that the European Union was created to harm the United States. Those are his words. Of course, he's completely wrong about that. It was the United States actually insisted that the Europeans... It was an American invention. We insisted during the Marshall Plan, both uh, President Truman and President Eisenhower, that Europe find a way to unite, and they did. So I think there's tremendous unhappiness with President Trump. And, you know, polite leaders like President Macron are not going to criticize him by name, but I think that's where this angst about what happened to the United States is coming from. What about the argument that you would hear from the Trump administration, which is that, you know, for years we've been sort of mollycoddling the Europeans, and, you know, some people have taken a somewhat tougher line over the years. Certainly during the George W. Bush administration, there was, you know, more pressure maybe on the Europeans, and that didn't work. So what we really need now is to take the gloves off, because we are the ones who are still providing for European security. We're putting, you know, much more treasure and and blood at risk than they are, and they need a wake-up call. Well, I was American ambassador to NATO on 9-11, and I remember when all the European allies, my ambassadors, called me in Brussels that day, that terrible day, to say, we're with you. And then the next morning we invoked Article 5, and they were with us. And they all went into Afghanistan with us, and they're still there with us 19 years later. And the Europeans have suffered over a thousand combat deaths in Afghanistan alone, and several thousand soldiers wounded. They've paid a real price there, and they've stuck by us. So I have very little patience with people in the Trump administration who feel free to tee off on the Europeans, and they don't know the facts. 
about what Europe has done in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Most of the European allies at NATO have gone into Iraq either in combat, some, or in training the Iraqi military. They've paid a price there, too. The French are leading the counterterrorism operations in Niger and Mauritania and Mali, with the U.S. helping. So it's not as if the Europeans are doing nothing. And I, I should also say, I spent a lot of my time as ambassador to NATO complaining to Europeans that they weren't spending enough on defense. We've seen five consecutive years now, from 2015 to 20, of real increases in the defense budgets of every European government. That's a victory for President Trump and President Obama. Both presidents have had success. It really dates from Russia's annexation of Crimea. That was the wake-up call. And so I think both presidents can say that they did their best and they've succeeded in convincing the Europeans to do more. So I do think a little more honey than vinegar from the Americans this morning would have been good. I thought Secretary Esper spoke well. I think he was right to focus on China. And the message he delivered on 5G, that the Europeans should keep Huawei out of their networks, was the same message that Speaker Pelosi delivered yesterday. There, there was a bipartisan message from the Americans, Congress, and administration, which I thought was very good. And I agree with what the Trump administration is saying, and I agree with Speaker Pelosi. And I think that's actually one of the stories here, uh, that they did, they did speak the same message. And, and yet, on 5G as well, the Europeans seem to be going in a different direction. Even the UK, uh, yeah. from everything that one hears here, it looks like the Germans are going to pursue a, a similar course, maybe yeah. a kind of UK 2.0 on, on 5G. Uh, given all of these other tensions, what do you think this all means for the transatlantic relationship, especially if President Trump is reelected? In the I think that you know, both the Trump and Obama administrations have been right to say to the Europeans, you really need to have a, a China strategy in Europe. You need to figure out, as we've had to figure out, and this is a hard thing to do, when do you cooperate with and when do you compete? Because we're in an increasingly competitive mode with China. And that's been supported by both parties in the United States. And the Europeans have not succeeded in any way, shape, or form of forming such a strategy. And Huawei is the best example because I think the United States representatives here made a very convincing case, both Speaker Pelosi and Secretary Esper, that Huawei is essentially, my words, letting a cancerous agent loose in the European bloodstream. And you don't want that. You don't want to be compromised by Chinese espionage. And that's a difficult message for the Europeans to hear because they're not united. There are some European countries that are much tougher on China than others, but Germany and France are not two of them. I was disappointed in President Macron's statement on Russia. It's one thing to say that we should have contacts with the Russian leadership. Of course we should. The United States does and Europe does. But there's a danger that some of the European countries will want to lessen the sanctions put on Russia by the EU and US over Ukraine. And the Russians have done nothing to merit that. And there was not a single word of criticism by the French president after all the rosy words about Russia, of the fact that Russia's bombed Idlib province, the barbaric bombing of the last couple of weeks that have produced 800,000 refugees, 800,000, the greatest number in the Syrian civil war. And there's almost a silence here in Europe about that. And that is uh, tragic, and it's not right. The Europeans should be speaking out on this. 
That was Nicholas Burns talking to Matt, and we'll be back with more from the Munich Security Conference, including an interview with European Commissioner Terry Breton and North Macedonia's Foreign Minister Nikola Dimitrov after a message from the sponsor of this week's episode. A message from the Croatian Presidency of the Council of the EU. Only safe Europe can provide peaceful environment for its citizens. In this regard, efficient protection of the EU external borders as well as an increased resilience to external threats and hybrid and cyber threats are of vital importance. Achieving a comprehensive solution for a sustainable and effective migration and asylum policies is our joint objective. We will remain focused on further developing our union as an area of freedom, security and justice based on the shared values, democracy and the rule of law. Therefore, the adoption of the new strategic guidelines in the area of freedom, security and justice will be one of our priorities. The rule of law is a core value and a fundamental principle of our union's functioning. We will pursue a comprehensive approach to the protection and promotion of the rule of law while strengthening dialogue and unity of the member states. Welcome back to the special edition of EU Confidential. Now, something else that came out of Emmanuel Macron's remarks were some encouraging comments for North Macedonia and Albania, who hope to start EU membership talks soon. A quick recap for those of you who don't follow all of this quite as closely as some of us. North Macedonia, you may remember, solved a long-running dispute with Greece, which had blocked its path to EU talks for a long time. The European Commission says that both countries, North Macedonia and Albania, are ready to begin membership talks, but Macron has led the opposition to giving them the green light. Now, there have been some changes since then, the most notable one being that the European Commission has come forward with a proposal to change the way the accession process is handled. And now we have these comments from Emmanuel Macron. So I asked Nicolas Dimitrov, North Macedonia's foreign minister, what he made of the French president's remarks. I think we have the ingredients for success taking place. We have the proposed methodology very important for France. Member states need to endorse that, hopefully. Then we have the forthcoming progress reports, both on Tirana and Skopje, North Macedonia and Albania. We have to make sure that the Commission has many deliverables to report, so that's important. This is my key take. And then I think the prospects for a decision are becoming possible. So this is this is my take. Were you encouraged? It was a positive signal. Yeah, were you encouraged by his comments seem to be the methodology has been sorted, that's okay. If the commission reports are positive, he seemed to because you know he's been the, the skeptic so far. So his remarks are important. Do you feel he's there yet? I think it's a positive signal. A signal in the right direction. What can you do from your side? We have one pending legislation on our public prosecutor's office. It's important for us to adopt that. This was not a formal precondition. But I think we don't have the luxury of not having a completely clean plate, a perfect candidacy, and in order to finally get this breakthrough. It makes me cautiously optimistic, but I don't think I can allow myself to be too happy at this stage. I think we need to see this happening first. 
We were talking a bit earlier about how there's perhaps a generation of politicians who don't have the Balkans quite as front of mind as those who remember the wars of, of the 90s and that very turbulent period. How do you persuade them that your region is important and that they should give the green light and do everything possible to bring the Western Balkans into the EU? I think it's misleading when we talk about enlargement or neighbourhood and think about the Western Balkans. We are very much in the midst of the European Union because all around us we border member states. We are like a room in a big European house that is not sorted out, that is not plugged in. The heating system, electricity, house rules don't apply. So I think making this room part of the European house actually is good for the house itself and for that room. It's obvious that leaders face most pressing issues. But I think the trouble with trouble is it spreads if it's not resolved. And I don't think we today in the world and also in Europe have the luxury of missing opportunities for success. The case of my country, the Macedonian case, is we lost generations because of the name issue. We were not part of the wars in former Yugoslavia, and the delay was because of the dispute. We resolved the dispute. In terms of our democracy and rule of law, we are definitely moving in the right direction. We are not there yet. So if Europe wants to encourage political leaders to resolve difficult issues, to invest in the reform agenda at home, it needs to recognize and encourage what is taking place in currently in North Macedonia. And I think at this stage, where there aren't too many opportunities for success, we should definitely grab this and do it. And how important is timing for you? Obviously, there was a non-decision uh, last uh, October. Uh, now Chancellor Merkel is talking about March. President Macron didn't go that far today. Uh, would it matter to you if it was March or if it was April or if it was May? Or how important is the timing? We have elections in April. We used the promise of the European Council to carry the PRESPA agreement at home, to carry it through. So the political construction of that historic resolution of a 30 years dispute included NATO membership and the start of the accession talks because it was over that issue that we lost so many generations. So the political capital that was invested in the PRESPA agreement will to some extent be compensated if there is an accession decision to start the journey. Otherwise, we leave the forces who did the compromise and invested in reforms politically weakened in a situation where the chapter is still not fully closed. We need to close the chapter. So timing is important, obviously. Finally, you were in Paris before here. You've always had the chance to gauge the mood among policymakers here. What's your overall mood as you head back to Skopje? Well, my energy is here. I'm, I don't know whether encouraged is a strong word, but I think success is possible and we need to do our best to grab it and make it happen. We at home and hopefully in Europe this, this resonates as well. 
Thanks very much. Thank you so much. That was North Macedonia's uh, Foreign Minister Nikola Dimitrov, and since we recorded that interview, North Macedonia has passed the prosecution law that he mentioned. Now, let's switch gears and talk Thierry Breton. Lawrence spoke to uh, him during the conference, and Lawrence, one of the things he talked about particularly was industrial data, and he seemed to think that's the big battlefield of the future. Can you just explain uh, what exactly that is and why it's important? Industrial data is, at the moment, it's Breton's raison d'être for coming into this commission. He started off with a little bit of work on 5G security, but he he's really keeps talking about data and the power of data for Europe's economy. So this is going to be sort of presenting uh, a couple of uh, strategy documents on this in the coming week. And this is going to be Breton primetime in principle. Breton, having a background at the French company Atos, obviously claims that he understands this industry completely. And his pitch is that Europe has so much data with its companies, its industries, with its cities, its citizens. He's talking about smart cities. He's talking about integrated sort of factories and all of these sort of new 5G connected technologies. And his pitch is there's so much data around we can use that for artificial intelligence. We don't have to be afraid of the U.S. innovation in AI. We don't have to be afraid of China's innovation in AI. We can do this as well. We just need to make sure that our companies share the data, that everyone has access to these big sets of data, and that we can work from there. His dream, obviously, is that Europe can build sort of its next generation of innovation and industry out of this. Lawrence, thanks very much. Now let's hear your interview with Thierry Breton, which took place. Uh, you'll hear a bit of hustle and bustle because it took place in the main conference venue at the Hotel Bayerischer Hof. I've decided that it was extremely important to speak today on a very important subject, which is the data battle we are entering into Europe. And to be even more precise, the industrial data. And my key message will be that the battle for industrial data starts now and Europe will be the main battlefield. What do I mean by that? I mean that it's obvious that in the data history we will have two phases. The first phase was mainly related to personal data. And it is true to say that the main continent who had a very deep internal data market without any borders were the first one to benefit from this personal data era. And of course, I'm thinking of the US and I'm thinking of China. But it's true also to consider that in Europe we are entering into a new phase. This phase is a phase of industrial data. And when do I say that Europe will be the main battlefield? For a very simple reason, Europe is the largest, biggest, most advanced industrial continent. This is in Europe that we have the best industries. I have been part of uh, the globalization in my life before being a commissioner. And I have seen US losing ground through globalization in manufacturing. And I've seen also progressively China building more expertise, capabilities, it was impressive, in manufacturing. But no one today has the base that we have in Europe. And of course, our job in the Commission, and my job as a Commissioner for Internal Market and Digital, is of course to make sure that we will win this race. We will launch a very important initiative here, 
to help our industries to benefit from this, to build the blocks on which you will be able to put the stacks and on top of them the APIs run on algorithms trained with European data, European industrial data, which has to be run close to the factories, close to the plants, close to the areas where the data are produced. And this is why everybody is so interested in Europe. But, you know, our jobs as politicians, especially as the Commission, and my job in particular, is to make sure that everybody understands, all the companies understand this in Europe. And by the way, I will work carefully, value chain per value chain, to make sure that everybody understands this, everybody has the right tools to do it, and of course, in terms of governance, in terms of how we organize ourselves, in terms of regulations also, of course we will welcome everyone. But now it's extremely important that we will set clear rules, including in terms of governance, being able to do something else with our own data is extremely, extremely, extremely important for any board of directors of any European companies. And by the way, this is why when we speak of sovereignty, we don't speak about protectionism. We just said, hey, we have everything to build the future. We have everything to build the new quantum technologies in terms of gravitation observation, in terms of quantum computers, quantum accelerators. We have everything to launch new satellites. We have everything to build new infrastructures. Again, everybody would like to join, they could join, like by the way for 5G. But now, in this world, it is extremely important for our companies to set rules which are European rules. Next week you'll present a number of strategies on this. There will be a data strategy, a digital single market, or at least a digital strategy building on digital single market. What should we expect here? Is this something that will provide results within the first year, within two years, five years? What's, what's the timeline? Oh, of course, uh, we expect this to provide results immediately, exactly like we did for 5G. This is happening now. And what is extremely important to explain to everyone what is happening and to help everyone to organize in terms of governance, soft law, and sometimes if needed regulation, hard law, the market, so that the internal market, the data internal market, the data industrial internal market will benefit for our companies. And I could tell you that in what we will present, a lot of things will be able to be used immediately, and again, especially in this industrial value chain. In terms of the big topic of the Munich Security Conference, a lot of the brain space, a lot of the discussion is going into China. President Macron took, took the stage and he talked more about Russia than about China. The US constantly brings up China. What do you think? Are we spending too much or too little time on debating China in Europe? China is a very important partner of us, competitor also. How about just, a systemic I just, rival? I just remind you again that we are the first continent and the most appealing market. We are proud of it. But here also, we have rules. My role as a commissioner of internal market is to make sure that these rules fulfilled by anyone and any non-EU companies, which is totally normal. And I will make sure that this is happening. So that's absolutely normal to speak about our big partners slash competitors. Maybe one concrete question on that. Mike Esper, the Defense Secretary of the United States, said that artificial intelligence technology specifically 
was a big problem with China. Working with them on artificial intelligence, importing their artificial intelligence uh, software and solutions, that is something that would breach Europe's values. Do you agree there? Do well, you think well that's, a, that's a broad question that we will explore, of course, in our AI white paper. It's extremely important that the AI applications for specific critical use, including the one touching our personal life, but not only, will respect our way of living, our rules of ethical rules. And this is why we will need to be extremely cautious that these specific applications match our, with our values. But when we say that, you definitely have to look at all the chain being able to build, to design an AI application. It's not only an algorithm or a piece of software. An AI application is mainly about data, specific data. That was Thierry Breton, the European Commissioner, talking to our own Lauren Serolus earlier in the conference. And that wraps up this special edition of EU Confidential from the Munich Security Conference. Many thanks for listening and a special thanks to old friend of the podcast, Wei Dong Lin, for stepping in to produce. We'll be back with a regular edition of the podcast from another big political gathering, the EU Budget Special Summit on Thursday. Not quite sure when we'll bring that to you. It does depend on how the summit goes, but we will be back later in the week with another EU Confidential. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.